Good morning. Charles Osgood is off today. I'm Lee Cowan, and this is Sunday Morning. This coming Friday, the people of Japan will mark the fifth anniversary of the tsunami that killed thousands along its coastline. Here in our country, seismologists are warning that it's just a matter of time before something similar happens here on our West Coast. But they're not talking about the area around California's San Andreas Fault. Instead, they're looking at the Pacific Northwest, as Don Daler will report in our cover story. A 9.0 earthquake and tsunami devastated eastern Japan in 2011. And scientists say it's a question of when, not if, it happens here, in the Pacific Northwest. This would be like five or six Katrinas all at once, up, up and down from California to, uh, to Canada. Ahead on Sunday morning, the really big one. How do you go from a high school student who doubted her looks to a Grammy-winning pop star almost overnight? Introducing Megan Trainer. Tracy Smith does the honors. Megan Trainer always knew she had the talent to be a big pop star. She just never thought it would happen. Did you get told no a lot? Yeah. Even by myself. I'd be like, nah, you ain't gonna be an artist. Why? Because I just, I didn't think I looked like it. Because you know I'm all about that bass. She was wrong. Later on Sunday morning, all about that superstar, Megan Trainer. Holly Hunter is an Oscar-winning actress with a long list of distinctive performances to her name. She'll be sitting down with our Jane Polly to talk about a few. Holly Hunter doesn't play a role. She reveals it. That's very powerful for me as an actor to just own it. The F-14 is one of Ahead on Sunday morning. You know, we kind of sat right <laughs> off the newsroom. We'll meet the inspiration for one of Holly Hunter's most iconic performances. Because today... And find out what's coming up next. Hint. Men in capes. Great Shakes is a story from Bill Geist, all about a collecting compulsion that even has the reporter himself in its spell. This is the Continental Divide. I started collecting souvenir salt and pepper shakers decades ago. These are my favorites. They're from the world's largest ball of twine in Cawker City, Kansas. Thinking America would become too sophisticated for such knickknacks. How many do you have displayed in your home? Uh, 14,900 and count. Boy, was I wrong. I would guess around 55,000. Extreme salt and pepper collected later on Sunday morning. Rita Braver looks at a show of Jackson Pollock paintings in Dallas. Connor Knighton is on the trail in Hot Springs National Park. Steve Hartman visits a cattle ranch that's gone vegan. Faith Staley warns that selfies can be hazardous to your health. And more. Ahead. Okay, this is the Christmas room. Please pass the salt. But first... Would you say that we're prepared for something like this? We're not completely unprepared, but we're pretty darn close. The big one. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Could a tsunami 
similar to the one that devastated Japan five years ago this week, wreak the same kind of havoc along our northern Pacific coast. Unfortunately, the experts say it's just a matter of time. Our Sunday morning cover story is reported by Don Daler. In March 2011, the world watched in awe and horror as a colossal tsunami ravaged eastern Japan. The result of a 9.0 magnitude earthquake. Entire cities were washed away. Millions stranded without power or water. 15,000 died. It was an otherworldly event, thousands of miles away. Thank goodness, many of us thought. It couldn't happen here. But it could happen here. In fact, scientists say it's a question of when, not if, a devastating earthquake, followed by a huge tsunami, strikes the continental United States right here in the Pacific Northwest. This would be like five or six Katrinas all at once, up, up and down from California to, uh, to Canada would be the closest thing I can think of. It may sound like a Hollywood disaster movie. I see it! But it's not. This is the future for the region's seven million people, says Chris Goldfinger a paleoseismologist at Oregon State University. In fact, his research shows much of the region is overdue for a major quake. The last one was back in 1700, long before there were large cities right in harm's way. If it happens anytime soon, it would just, just devastate the area. Goldfinger estimates there's a one in three chance the quake will strike sometime in the next 50 years. Would you say that we're prepared for something like this? We're not completely unprepared, but uh, we're pretty darn close. On a scale of one to 10, we're probably a little shy of one at this point. This is ground zero, the 700 mile long area off the Pacific coast called the Cascadia subduction zone, where the North American tectonic plate meets another plate known as the Juan de Fuca. The dark image we're seeing here is literally sliding under the lighter image. That's right, so they're converging but still stuck. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is the weaker plate, which is North America, buckles. And eventually something's gonna give. So the coastline that's been jacked up over 500-ish years or so is gonna drop about a meter uh, in about a minute or so. And that's just the earthquake. Next, as we saw in Japan, comes a tsunami, with waves as high as 50 feet roaring on shore, reaching miles inland. It's a threat the government says it's taking seriously. But is FEMA ready for the big one? I would never say we are ready. Ken Murphy is the administrator for FEMA Region 10. These represent the roads uh, that can be affected by the earthquake or out here on the coastline can be affected by the tsunami. The agency has spent years preparing the federal response. FEMA's best case scenario, 10,000 dead. And that's assuming no beach tourists 
which would lead to their worst-case scenario simply too terrifying to contemplate. Depending on when it happens, we're, we're talking numbers that uh, this nation, I'm not sure, is really prepared to deal with. Potentially the greatest natural disaster this country has ever experienced? I would say it has the potential uh, for that. Uh, this is an event you send everything to and scale back down if you don't need it. The quake could displace a million people from northern California to southern Canada. Large parts of Seattle, Portland, and Vancouver will crumble. In coastal towns, roads and bridges will likely be impassable, stranding whole communities. The region's economy could collapse. Rebuilding might take years, even decades. And few places are more at risk than this one. It's Seaside, Oregon's school complex. 1,500 students in four aging buildings. Superintendent Doug Doherty. And the structural engineers tell us that a vast majority of the building will collapse in a seismic event. Three of Seaside's four schools are also in the tsunami zone. In fact, its high school is just feet away from the Pacific Ocean. The students and staff, if they are able to evacuate, earthquake starts, have between 15 and 20 minutes to get to high ground, 1.3 miles. And that's one of those other pieces that uh, keeps me awake at night. 100 miles to the north in Westport, Washington, Acosta Elementary is another school with seemingly no way out. So it built its own way out. Doing a great job. Straight up. A new school building currently under construction offers safe and high ground right on its roof. It's the country's first vertical evacuation structure with walls 44 feet high and 14 inches thick. Run as fast as you can, get up into the tsunami safe area. Superintendent Paula Ackerlin says voters approved an additional $2 million for the emergency structure. The community, you know, they were looking at the safety of not just their children now, but generations in the future. This is not an affluent community, so it's a huge commitment. Other evacuation plans and seismic upgrades are taking place, but not nearly fast enough, say the experts. Back at Seaside, Oregon, three years ago, the school district did try moving all its students to a new campus. But when they found out it would take an 18% property tax increase, the voters rejected the measure by a margin of almost two to one. Were you surprised? Oh, I was not only surprised, but heartbroken. It's just very, very expensive for our local citizens to uh, foot the bill entirely. I hope people don't uh, understand the implications of their decisions because that would basically be writing off an entire school district student population. With no money from the state or the federal government, Doug Doherty says he's planning to retire and work for another ballot campaign for a new campus. As for Oregon State's Chris Goldfinger, he continues to warn about a disaster 
that science says is just a matter of time. This is going to scare a lot of people. Well, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. If you're really well prepared and the infrastructure is hardened, that can be the end of it. If you don't plan at all, it's going to be a catastrophe. And then uh, uh, there's, there's just nothing you can do about that. Guide your banks, guide your children, guide your doors. Coming up, the whole world was watching. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Sisters and brothers, the head of the police sergeants association called emotionally for all-out war between the pigs and us. We accepted. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, March 6th, 1970, 46 years ago today, the day homegrown terrorism blew a historic New York City home to bits. Guide your banks, guide your children, guide your doors. For that was the day a bomb accidentally exploded in a 19th century Greenwich Village townhouse, a building once owned by stockbroker Charles Merrill, one of the founders of Merrill Lynch. The bomb was being assembled by members of the Weather Underground, a radical left-wing group that took its name from the Bob Dylan lyric. You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Three members of the group were killed outright. Two others, Kathy Boudin and Kathy Wilkerson, whose father owned the townhouse, survived the blast but quickly fled the scene. Police are centering their search in Chicago for the young woman who escaped the townhouse during the explosions. In the confusion that followed, actor Dustin Hoffman was spotted retrieving valuables from his apartment in the townhouse next door. After years on the run, Kathy Wilkerson voluntarily surrendered in 1980. She would serve less than a year in prison. Among the four suspects arrested was Catherine Boudin. More spectacularly, Kathy Boudin was arrested for her role in a 1981 Brinks truck robbery that left three people dead. She was paroled in 2003 and was later, and not without controversy, appointed an adjunct professor at Columbia University in 2013. As for the Greenwich Village townhouse, well, a new owner rebuilt it in the late 1970s in an eye-catching and distinctly non-19th century style. It changed hands in late 2013 for a reported nine and a quarter million dollars. Ahead, lining up for Jackson Pollock. We've already done this room, says one modern art viewer to the other, in this classic Barney Toby New Yorker cartoon. I remember that fire extinguisher. Along with a good-natured ribbing, modern art has also received much acclaim over the years, and few modern artists have been more acclaimed than Jackson Pollock, who died 60 years ago this coming August. One period, though, of his career has tended to be overlooked, an omission that Rita Braver is about to correct. Jackson Pollock's complex and colorful multi-layered canvases took the international art world by storm, beginning in the late 1940s. There is painting before Jackson Pollock and there's painting after Jackson Pollock. Gavin Delahunty is the curator of a new Pollock exhibit 
at the Dallas Museum of Art. How many pieces are in this? There are over 70 works by Jackson Pollock in the exhibition. There are some of the paintings for which Pollock is best known. There's this sodium orange, this glistening orange line. But the exhibit focuses mostly on a series done in 1951, when Jackson Pollock painted only in black. On some levels, you might say it kind of looks like a doodle. <laughs> it's, it's doodly because he's still, he's still thinking it through. Can I make paintings exclusively using black on raw cotton substrate that can maintain the tightness and excitement of my classic paintings? And this is the moment that the penny drops. But the events surrounding that moment comprise a tale of triumph and tragedy. Paul Jackson Pollock was born in 1912 in Cody, Wyoming, one of five sons. The family bounced around the Southwest trying to eke out a living. Still, Pollock's mother encouraged his early interests in art. When he was in high school, he took art classes, and those were the only classes he really seemed to be very good at. Helen Harrison, who runs the Pollock Krasner Home and Study Center near East Hampton, Long Island, says that at age 18, Pollock traveled to New York City to study with American muralist Thomas Hart Benton, whose influence can be seen in Pollock's early work. Gradually, however, Pollock became fascinated with abstraction, his work drawing the attention of influential collectors and gallery owners. But as dramatized in the 2000 biopic starring Ed Harris, Jackson Pollock had a serious drinking problem. No! No! And so in 1946, his wife, Lee Krasner, herself an accomplished painter, convinced him to move here from the city. I think there was definitely an incentive to get him away from the drinking buddies, but also just to give him the space and the kind of mental space that he needed to really develop himself, and he did. It was here, as this rare footage shows, that Pollock developed the style that really made him famous, dripping and pouring paint directly onto canvas. I usually paint on the floor. I enjoy working on a large canvas. Having the canvas on the floor, I feel nearer, more a part of the painting. And although the work was puzzling to some, as this Norman Rockwell painting playfully illustrates, by 1949, Life magazine was asking if Jackson Pollock was America's greatest painter. As a matter of fact, uh, most of the people who wrote their letters to the editor, over 500 of them in response, said no. <laughs> but those who did like it were crazy about it. Some did call him Jack the Dripper. This was Pollock's studio from 1946 until his death. And the floor of his studio is still splattered with his colorful industrial paint, plus a few footprints. But just as sales of Pollock's layered abstractions were taking off, he started to work in black with recognizable images peeking through. It seems like you can see a head, an ear, arms. What's going on? It is 
part of the transition of the black paintings that Pollock starts to resuscitate or bring back to life some of the figuration that had previously dominated in his painting. Did anybody rush out and buy them? No, sadly not. I think no. people were confused. That why would someone who has just developed a new language of painting go off on a tangent? But it was Pollock distilling and purifying everything he had learned. Pollock would return to color, but by the mid-1950s he was drinking again and cheating on his wife. In 1956, he crashed his car while driving drunk. His mistress, who was riding with him, survived. Jackson Pollock and a second passenger did not. He was just 44. The man who at most made a few thousand dollars for a painting never lived to see his works go for millions or to fulfill his artistic promise. Should Jackson have lived, I think we would have seen some of the great bodies and periods of work that we, you get with Matisse and Picasso, singular periods that they did in mid-career, late career, and it just fills me with pain to know that we never got to see that from Jackson Pollock. Because you know I'm all about that base. Still to come, Megan Trainer's timeless message. I get messages all the time. I hated myself. I didn't want to go to school. And I was in a really dark place until your song came out. And later, the F-14 is one of the most difficult the planes to master. They're called the Tomcats. Tom? George, isn't the F-14 Tomcat one of the most difficult machines for a pilot to master? We get the news from Holly Hunter. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Lee Cowan. Introducing Megan Trainer, whose hit song, All About That Bass, has become an anthem of self-acceptance for countless numbers of young women. Tracy Smith caught up with her backstage. How are you feeling? Do you nervous. do anything before you... Nope, I just pretend I'm not nervous, and I fake it until I make it. Good luck. You're going to be awesome. Thank you. Be great. Four years ago, Megan Trainer was just another face in the crowd here at Cape Cod's Nauset Regional High School. Now she's a reason to cancel class. So what do you say we get up on our feet and give a rousing cheer as we bring Megan Trainer to the stage? At 22, Megan Trainer has had the kind of success that artists twice her age can only dream of. In less than two years, she's gone from virtual unknown to full-fledged pop star with a series of catchy, retro-sounding, radio-friendly tunes that, for the most part, she wrote and produced herself. When we first met her in January, she was holed up in an L.A. studio, wrapping up her second album and feeling the heat. Can you try to mute this first half? This woman up, the up is mad sharp. Are you a perfectionist? Yeah, well, I, I last album I wasn't really, because I didn't know that the whole world would listen to it. But now knowing that everyone is waiting for this album and excited, I'm kind of like, ah, oh, let's go back into this bridge and make sure this is perfect before it's out there for the rest of my life. <laughs> <Forever>. <laughs> 
My name is No. My sign is No. My number is No. This song, her latest single, No, debuted last week. Not bad for a young woman who never thought she was pretty enough to be a pop star. Megan Elizabeth Trainer's road to the top started here on Nantucket Island. She was the middle child growing up in a music-loving family. So when did you first see that Megan had musical talent? Well, starting big questions. I'd say around seven, seven years old. And you know, they always wanted to put on a show. That was what the family was all about. So we knew that she loved music right from the start. She also loved to sing in public. Gary Trainer played the organ at the United Methodist Church, and on Sunday mornings, Megan would stand and sing just where you see her now. With dad's encouragement, young Megan started writing her own songs and never really stopped. By the time you were in high school, you'd written how many songs? Over 200. Over 200 yeah. as a teenager. Yeah. And played how exactly. many instruments? A bunch. But she says her dream of pop stardom fizzled whenever she looked in the mirror. Growing up in your tween years, what were those like? Ugh. Ugh? Ugh. Why? Uh, I saw pictures. I didn't believe it, but yes, it was real. I every day wore sweatshirts and sweatpants to cover up my body because I was so insecure. And it would be summer, and I would go on vacation, and I'd be in Trinidad and Tobago, 90-degree weather, and I'd be wearing sweatshirts that said Nantucket. And I, I would even think, like, oh, when I'm 25, I'll figure out how to do the diet thing and get my body together, and then I'll try to be really pretty and be the artist and get dance lessons. But for now, I'll just do this this. I mean, it changes your posture and everything. Yeah, I would always sit like hunch. I would always go forward because I thought that made me look better, and it didn't. In high school, her insecurity sometimes showed. Tom Ferris was her music teacher. She wanted to be a pop star, but, you know, she didn't have the right body image, and she just kind of uh, bemoaned the fact that it might never happen, and, you know, maybe I'll just end up being a songwriter for other artists. Sure enough, she managed to get a publishing deal and wrote songs for groups like Rascal Flats. But then she tried something more personal and co-wrote a song that was a celebration of full-figured females, all about that bass. She started shopping the song around, and in January 2014, she played it for Epic Records. Someone in the room recorded the moment on a cell phone. Within minutes after he heard her play, Epic chairman L.A. Reid signed her. Suddenly, the shy songwriter was an artist on stage and making her very first music video. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. What was it like shooting the music video? I remember I was terrified. I was scared. Every time they said cut, I would bend over and be like, oh, God, okay, here we go. And first of all, I'm dancing. The first scene, 7 a.m., was dancing, which I've never done in my life. And I was like, does it, does it look cool? <laughs> And I remember I rehearsed in sneakers all the time, and then they put me in heels day of. And I was like, well, this is a lot harder in heels. I don't know if we should do this. Because you know I'm all about that change. All About That Bass became a cultural phenomenon. 
it rocketed to number one, earned two Grammy nominations, and basically dominated the airwaves. Did you mean to bash skinny people? I didn't bash skinny people. I was just, I was just writing for myself. And for millions, it was a word of encouragement. Do you think about how that song resonates with some little girl who was like you, sitting in a baggy sweatshirt? Yeah, I get um, messages all the time. I hated myself, I didn't want to go to school. I was so uncomfortable, and now I love myself. And I was in a really dark place until your song came out. And I was like, whoa, man, we gotta do more of these, we gotta do more of these songs. <laughs> so you wanna answer some questions? Yeah, we've got questions. These days, just about everything in Megan Trainer's world has changed. I was thinking we could go to prom together. <laughs> All About That Bass is still her biggest single, but she's no one-hit wonder. Last month, she was a Grammy nominee for Best New Artist. Dad went along as her date. And the Grammy goes to... Megan Trainer. He whispered something to you. Yes. When they said Megan Trainer, hugged him. I went to go up. He whispered in my ear while crying, "You made it." And I lost everything. I broke apart, and I was like, "Oh no, I'm never gonna make it up these stairs. <laughs> like, I need to go cry. I don't know if I can do this." Oh, I'm a mess. <laughs> looking at me like an artist and my mom and dad. <laughs> Truth is, there's a lesson in Megan Trainer's story. The best way to conquer self-doubt is to follow your dream and to work your uh, face off. How proud are you of this oh, young I, woman? I mean, I'm sure everybody knows as well as we remind ourselves all the time how, how wonderful it really is. Ahead. They felt better after they drank it. They felt better after they bathed in it. Some like it hot. How often do you consider your salt and pepper shakers? Clearly, these are no great shakes, but the ones our Bill Geist observed at a recent shaker show, yes, there really are such things, most definitely are. Salt and pepper, salt and pepper. Shake, shake, shake. Rarely do you see such unbridled enthusiasm for salt and pepper shakers. Unless you're at the annual novelty salt and pepper shaker collectors convention. Oh, you like travel ones? Yes. This is a continental divide. I brought a sampling of my own humbling collection, numbering about 50, to the most recent gathering. Let's get the party started with a roll call of the states. This one in a Virginia hotel, where clearly I was out of my league. How many do you have? I have at least 5,000. Joycey Porter has 5,000 I mean, sets. So I mean, it sounds to regular normal people like a salt and pepper club. What is that? They think you're nuts. Well, they know me, so <laughs> I have never been called normal, but then that's boring. Thank you. And you're from Long Island? Can't you tell? Yeah! 
This is the Canadian delegation. We like them because they are small. They don't take up a lot of room. They are pretty much everywhere, so it's hard to come home empty-handed. And they're not expensive. How many do you have displayed in your home? Uh, 14,900 and count. At the annual gathering, enthusiasts dress in costumes depicting their favorite salt and pepper. Admire salt and pepper's dioramas, but mostly they're here to buy more shakers. Hotel rooms upstairs are stocked and open for business. Karen Weaver and Sylvia Tompkins have a wide variety to fit everyone's pocketbook. If I come in here with five bucks, can I find something? Yes. That's why we have the five dollar. And what would be the top of the line? Top. Hundreds? Yeah, the German sets. The two women have co-authored a book about what else? Salt and pepper shakers. This year will be the fourth year that Karen and I have gone to England. At age 89, Sylvia is still out there collecting. But she has to be a bit more particular these days. I have around 10. I had to, you know, give some up because I moved to a retirement community and I don't have so the room. So you scaled down to 10,000. Yeah, right. <laughs> Karen, on the other hand, has not scaled down. Okay, this is the Christmas room where we have all the snowmen, Santas. Her home in Ohio looks like the Metropolitan Museum of Salt and Pepper Shakers. And this is our character room, TV characters. And I have the, the Jetsons in the center. This is my very favorite. How many has she crammed in here? I would guess around 55,000. 55,000 pairs. Shaker shock and awe. We have the naughty section, the monkeys, dogs, cats, mice. Luckily, Karen married a builder, Greg, who has enlarged their house and is building cabinets as fast as he can. I thought once we ran out of room in a certain area, maybe she would slow down herself, but that didn't happen. It just kept growing and growing and growing. A lot of people think you're nuts, you're nuts, and hey, that's fine too. Yeah, it's fun to be nuts, huh? Yeah. <laughs> fun to be nuts, words we could all live by at least once in a while. Next, we remember. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It happened this past week, the loss of three masters of three very different crafts. Tennis commentator and writer Bud Collins died Friday at his home in Brookline, Massachusetts. Known for his colorful wardrobe and his colorful opinions, Bud Collins was the sport's beloved television presence for nearly 50 years. Good afternoon, Bud Collins. Along a series of networks, including for a time, here at CBS. Climax of an extraordinary event in tennis. Of all his insights into the game, his pithiest was perhaps his best. Either the ball goes over the net, he once wrote, or it doesn't. Bud Collins was 86. Actor George Kennedy died last Sunday in Boise, Idaho. He won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for his role as a prison inmate in the 1967 film Cool Hand Luke. 
in which he first bested fellow prisoner Paul Newman in a boxing match. And then looked on as Newman bluffed his way to victory in a card game. And he beat you with nothing. Just like today when he kept coming back at me with nothing. Sometimes nothing can be a real cool hand. Not always a tough guy, George Kennedy showed a more comic side in later years with roles in the Naked Gun movies. Any other victims? Uh, you're standing on one right now. Oh. George Kennedy was 91. How do you write a bestseller? I cannot figure it out. Author um, Pat Conroy got on Friday. And despite that disclaimer to our Bill Geist back in 1995, Conroy's success was no accident. Born in Georgia and with high school years spent in South Carolina, Conroy mined his unhappy childhood for a series of novels, several of which were made into films. Hi, who's for me? Who's for me? Let's hear it. In The Great Santini, he drew on his life with an abusive military father, portrayed in the 1979 movie by Robert Duvall. Who the hell asked you anything? Who turned a basketball game with his son, played by Michael O'Keefe, into a war of words. My favorite daughter, Ben, I swear to God, you're my sweetest little girl. This little girl just whipped your ass good, Colonel. Pat Conroy's novels were his way of realizing the ambition that he laid out for CBS back in 1988. I always felt that if I told the story of the South, I would tell the history of the whole world. If I could figure out the South, figure out what is glorious about it, figure out what is hideous about it, if I could get it down, if I could get it right, I would tell the story of the entire human race. Pat Conroy was 70. Who's going next in the red trailer? Still to come, cattle call. Conscious of Do you know stuff. Bob Schieffer? And later, hey. Hey. How are you? actress Holly Hunter and friends. You know, taking advantage of, um, of your friends. You know, it's so nice to hear <laughs> talk to someone. We've sent our Connor Knighton on a cross-country journey this centennial year of the National Park Service. He's on the trail, and this morning that trail leads him to Arkansas. In the city of Hot Springs, Arkansas, you can't miss the water. It is everywhere. Bubbling out of the fountains, steaming up the sidewalks, and on tap at 103 degrees in the center of town. But you just might miss the National Park. I have had people stop me on the sidewalk out front. Where's the National Park? How do I get to the National Park? And I'm like, well, you're here. <laughs> Hot Springs is the smallest of our 59 national parks, and its visitor center is located in the middle of a busy street. They're expecting the Yellowstone experience, where you drive through the little shack and the, the ranger leans out and hands you a map and don't get run over by a bear. That doesn't happen here. Ranger Tom Hill is the curator at Hot Springs. In 1832, 40 years before Yellowstone became our first national park, President Andrew Jackson protected this area as a land reservation. Not for its beauty, but for what was underneath the land. They realized that there was something therapeutic about the geothermal spring water that was coming out of the ground in hot springs. They felt better after they drank it. They felt better after they bathed in it. Springs became a destination for bathing, known all across the world. And while there was certainly some pampering, most visitors were coming with a prescription. 
Most people were coming here as their last resort, not because it was a resort. They were coming here because their doctor had, had tried everything else and it didn't work for whatever the ailment was, whether it was arthritis or whatever. A regiment of hot springs baths was used to treat everything from polio to syphilis. Treatments were coupled with exercise and regular walks, and eventually, electrotherapy. By the 1920s, notables from Al Capone to Rudolph Valentino were all heading to hot springs to take the waters. Baseball teams came for some literal spring training. In 1946, the town was serving up one million baths a year. But by the 1960s, hot springs had cooled down. The first bathhouse of the bathhouse row, anyway, to close was this one, the Fordyce in 1962, because it was the most opulent building. It was the most expensive to operate. Scientific advancement meant that a hot bath was no longer the preferred way to treat disease. One by one, the houses closed down. All except the Buckstaff, which is the only bathhouse in the park to never shut its doors. Patrons can still experience a series of baths, treatments, and whatever this thing is, much as visitors did 100 years ago. Sure, the water probably doesn't have any magical healing properties, but according to owner Michael Branch, it can still work wonders. Nowadays, most people use it for stress relief. Yeah, most people don't realize how much stress they have in their lives till they slow down. And at the old Superior bathhouse, they're specializing in a different kind of stress relief. When I learned I was moving to Hot Springs, I said, well, why is nobody brewing with the hot spring water? It seems so cool. Roche Schweikart applied through the Park Service to repurpose the Superior bathhouse as a brewery. So I have my pale ale, I have an Irish red ale, I have our Chardonnay Noir, which is a Belgian dark ale. It's, it's the only brewery in a national park. When you brew beer, the first thing you do is heat up water. So we have water that's, you know, 90% of the way heated. We need to heat it a little bit more. Rose leases the old bathhouse from the park, and it's just the latest in a long line of entrepreneurs drawn to this valley of the vapors. National parks are not just about preserving scenery and old buildings, it's preserving the human story that happened in all those places too. It's a story that's still being written, here in the great indoors. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. When a Texas cattleman transformed his ranch into a dietary green acres, our Steve Hartman just had to go take a look. Come on. All cattlemen face challenges beyond their control. But not long ago, at this ranch south of Houston, Tommy Sonnen faced a problem of his own I doing. You know, every marriage has its issues. It's uh, not always easy. I was as unprepared for it as anybody. What's up? It all began innocently enough. Want to come lay down? Shortly after they got married six years ago, Renee just started hanging out with the livestock. Okay, baby. Tommy warned her. Renee, don't name those cows. But she didn't listen. Hey, Star. Then she started singing to them, too. Who's going next in the red trailer? And before long, this rancher's wife had turned into a rancher's worst nightmare. A vegan who couldn't stomach so much as living on a cattle ranch anymore. Well, he was just going to get out of the business and our marriage was going to be over. It wasn't working. 
And uh, I said, I'm going to sell the whole herd. And she goes, well, if you're going to sell the whole herd anyway, why don't you just sell them to me? I said, sell them to you. And he looks at me like, you have lost it. You are crazy. Clearly, there was some truth to that. But what Tommy didn't know was that Renee had been secretly posting a blog called Vegan Journal of a Rancher's Wife. She attracted thousands of followers, and through those contacts, Renee was able to raise $30,000, enough for a hostile takeover. All of a sudden, he was fixing to be bought out by his wife. Is this not emasculating in any way? No! I'm asking him. Yeah, I, I didn't appreciate it, but... Uh... You know, it was growing pains. Come here. And here's where this story gets good. After his wife raised the money, Tommy did something rare for a rancher, or any man for that matter. He put aside his ego and reconsidered a core belief. What are you doing, girl? He stopped eating meat, liked how it felt, and now works for his wife at the Rowdy Girl Vegan Farm Animal Sanctuary. As best we can tell, the only cattle ranch conversion in the country. So now that he's changed for you, how would you like to change her? I can't think of a thing. Aww. <laughs> and there is everything you need to know to stay married forever. <laughs> Next, actress Holly Hunter. Amazing woman. What a feeling having you inside my head. Yeah, it was an unusual place to be. It's like indescribable. You knew just when to feed me the next line. You knew the second before I needed it. There was like a rhythm we got into. It was like great sex. <laughs> Holly Hunter convincingly played a hard-driving TV producer in the 1987 movie Broadcast News. Convincingly being just about the only way Holly Hunter knows how to play a role. Jane Pauley has our Sunday profile. I want that baby! Holly Hunter is only five foot two. Give me that baby, you warthog from hell! But on camera, she packs a powerful punch. Whether playing a scene-stealing secretary... Mr. Lomax will see you now. ...or a detective battling inner demons. What I didn't tell them was my name... ...or that I was a cop... ...or that you left a beer bottle at my house. Even very ordinary people, upon closer examination, can often look extraordinary. And I've played a lot of everyday kind of people who normally might not have uh, a, a lens trained on them. Holly Hunter digs deep into her characters. Consider the piano, which won her an Oscar in the role of a 19th century woman who is mute. There are no words, but there was a lot of communication with your hands. Right. She says it's her piano and she won't have him touch it. And you made up that language. I hired um, somebody who was a, a sign language interpreter. How did you speak to him? And then we kind of created one that would look good 
in with my hands and something that I felt comfortable with that would be created. How much would it cost to have somebody put down? But when Holly Hunter does speak, there's no mistaking that distinctive accent. It comes straight from Conyers, Georgia, where she grew up the youngest of seven kids. I was, you know, born and raised on a farm where boys had chores and girls did not, i.e. drive tractors, bale hay, take care of cattle. And you were free to be in the drama club? And, and to, like, make things up. And make things up? <laughs> yeah. School plays led to drama school, to theater in New York. Six years after her film debut, the breakout role. You go right back up there and get me a toddler. I need a baby high. They got more than they can handle. The Cone Brothers raising Arizona in 1987. Just a two-second dissolve to the right, Well, Now, should I? Just a two-second dissolve. And later that same year, an actress became a star. All remote standby, please. In broadcast news, opposite Albert Brooks and William Hurt. Broadcast news was, I don't know if I can do this. You know, I'm not sure I can do this. Hunter brought that self-doubt to the part of a young TV news producer, swinging wildly between under and overconfidence. It must be nice to always believe you know better, to always think you're the smartest person in the room. No, it's awful. A role modeled on a real-life CBS News producer, Susan Zarinsky. You know, we kind of sat right off the newsroom, <laughs> and then uh, the people Holding from the cast with, arm around with her arm around yeah, me yeah, like yeah. this. Yeah, 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 it would be just um, like this. But they're still friends. Uh, you have the Schlesinger exchange with... Today, Zarinsky is senior executive right. producer okay. of 48 Hours. 29 years ago, she was a driven young producer in the CBS Washington Bureau. Hunter studied her for weeks. I was tailing her. Um, she took notes. I took copious notes because, you know, uh, it, it's, a, it's a daunting thing to have to, one, be smarter than Bill Hurt. If I can pick your brain, if... I, I can't help you. Sorry, I'm not here to teach remedial reporting. And two, you know, pretend to do something that you don't do. Do it! Do it! Or I'll fry your fat ass still. Goodbye! I had no idea. Yeah, she was this good. Yeah, the camaraderie that, that Susan had with, with her team, this is where I could pick it up. You know, the, the, the physical relationship that Susan had was something that I really wanted to uh, capture in, 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 in the movie. <laughs> you were brilliant. I like to do research. It gives me a sense of ownership. That's very powerful for me as an actor to just own it. And so I have to go through a series of steps to own it. You can relate totally. This is who she is. It's, and, but you don't learn that. That's just who she is. I mean, you know, it's in your DNA. But it's kind of in your DNA, too. Yes. So, you know, like obsessive compulsive is an attractive quality to me. Do you know Bob Schieffer? Reunited in the CBS newsroom, Zerinsky and Hunter attracted some attention. You know, it's so nice to hear talk to someone that doesn't have an accent. <laughs> Broadcast News was the first of four Oscar nominations. But as hard as Holly Hunter works, she's also fine not working. 
I can very much enjoy taking a year off, um, whereas some people would feel um, crippled by that. Uh, I can feel enlarged by it. And, and then I also like to work nonstop, maybe for a year and a half, and then take a year off. Ten years ago, at 47, she became the mother of twins. <laughs> After playing a super mom in The Incredibles. Be strong. Holly Hunter is the voice of Elastigirl. I want you to run as fast as you can. As fast as I can? As fast as you can. Are you a fan of the action genre? I often don't watch those movies. I do. Do you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I really like That's them. interesting. Mm -hmm. So you're, you watch these superhero movies. Anything that gets me to the theater with a bucket of popcorn in front of me? <laughs> we act by the consent of the governed, sir. While it may seem ironic, an actress not so into superhero movies, her latest role is a small part in a big one. Because today is a day for truth. Batman versus Superman. Could be the biggest audience you will ever have. Yeah. It's wild to be in a movie that you've, you know, possibly a majority of people that I pass per block in New York City will will have seen that movie. Um, that's something that never happens to me. And Holly Hunter has three more films lined up to be released. It's enough to make any actor jealous. Well, look, <laughs> I, I, I hope not. That. I mean, I, you know, no, this, is, this you. is my fourth decade. So, like, I'm, I'm hoping that they're, that they're, like, going, good on you, girl. Coming up, when a selfie self-destructs. You might want to think before you take that next selfie, it could actually be a matter of life or death. Or so says our contributor, Faith Saley. Last year, more people died from selfies than shark attacks. And many more have been injured by taking their own picture. Deaths have been caused by distracted photo takers falling off cliffs, crashing cars, being hit by trains, and shooting themselves while posing with guns. Apparently, guns don't kill people. Selfies do. Things have gotten so bad that Mumbai has outlawed selfies after 19 deaths in India. Pamplona officials have banned them during the annual running of the bulls. And New York just became the first state to ixnay tiger selfies, uh, for obvious reasons. Now might be a good time to note that while gals take more selfies than guys, 75% of selfie victims are men. These untimely deaths are sad, and I feel sorry for those left behind. But really, death by selfie is a low-hanging fruit of a metaphor because selfies are killing our experiences. We are obsessed with proving that we had experiences rather than appreciating them as they occur. We cannot admire a breathtaking mountain without inserting ourselves into the scenery. It's not enough to see the Mona Lisa. We have to photobomb her. You know what's made the Mona Lisa so compelling through the centuries? She's an heir of something called mystery. We don't know quite why she's smiling. But we know why you're smiling. You're smiling because you're about to post photographic evidence that you're at the Louvre, y'all. We're not living in the moment. We're making sure we can demonstrate we had the moment to everyone we know and don't know. 
not only are we killing our experiences this way, we're also dispatching our memories. I recently interviewed a doctor who works with memory, who told me she thinks we're outsourcing it to technology. We rely on a cloud to capture what's happened to us rather than absorbing it into our souls. We aren't allowing ourselves to have an experience we can hold in our mind and turn into stories we can share. Not by Instagram, but by mouth. We're losing the art of telling someone a story. I'm not a selfie taker, no thanks, but I'm guilty of this. Not too long ago, I took my one-year-old to the petting zoo, and I was so focused on finding the best angle to film her that I barely got to see the way she giggled through her first encounter with a llama. I realized I should just put my smartphone away and enjoy my time with her. She's not really gonna care if I didn't get to video her being licked by an ungulate. May we all hope to live in a more selfie-less society. Or maybe the sci-fi Sharknado series will give way to a cautionary horror franchise called Selfie-Nado. At least we can say this, those departed selfie victims died doing what they love. I'm Lee Cowan. Thanks for joining us this Sunday morning. We'll see you again next week.